Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, one of the most well-known and well-loved passages in all of sacred scripture. It is good to remember what the apostle said, that uh, all scripture is uh, God-breathed and profitable, but also that it was written for our benefit, that we might have hope, and particularly pertinent to remember that with this text today. We began to look at this chapter last time in this ongoing series on the parables. We'll continue today and actually we'll continue next time um, as well. So rich um, is this passage. We're going to read today from verse 11 through verse 24 concerning the prodigal son uh, right after we pray. So please join me. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come, and as Holy Spirit, you have caused this word to be written for our benefit, we pray that you would make it alive in our hearts and minds today. We ask that you would do that for Christ's sake, amen and amen. Beginning in verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son, and he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Four points to the sermon this morning. First of all, the who of salvation Secondly, the why of salvation. Thirdly, the how of salvation. And fourthly, the lessons uh, to be taken away from uh, the sermon this morning. Martin Luther, a great Protestant reformer of the 16th century, said this, and I quote, If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. These three parables are intended to promote joy in the hearers. These three parables are like three instruments. When each is played, it makes a different sound, but all of them are playing the same tune. 
And the tune is that of God's love and God's joy over repentant sinners. There are few chapters in Scripture have done more good to the hearts of Christians than this chapter. So take heed that it may do good to your heart and your joy. So first of all, the who of salvation. As we noted last time, there are three parables here. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Don't know whether or not you've thought about that, but you may have, and you might simply ask, why three parables about lost things? Does Luke simply intend to make the same point three times? Well, I would suggest no. They're chosen because uh, they convey different shades of meaning in each parable. And together we know uh, or we discover that there's no one less than the triune God is concerned with the salvation of sinners. That is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are being conveyed and communicated in these parables. Bear with me and look at the text if you would. Verse 4 through 7, right? We learn of the shepherd finding the lost sheep. If you're a good student of the Bible, you'll recognize from passages like Isaiah chapter 40 or Ezekiel chapter 34 or the beloved Psalm 23 that the Lord is the shepherd of his people. God the Father uh, or God uh, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, Of course, in verse 11 and following, the prodigal son's father uh, is obviously God the Father. And verses 8 through 10, uh, the lost coin, if the son and the father are in the surrounding parables, then the Holy Spirit uh, is here in Scripture as well. The church is the bride through which the Holy Spirit reveals God's truth as light. And in Revolu- uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, the woman and light uh, are both uh, used for the people of God. No one less than Charles Spurgeon uh, uh, reiterates this understanding, and I quote from him. He expounds chapter 15 in one of his sermons thusly, I quote, The third parable would be likely misunderstood without the first and the second. We have sometimes heard it said, here is the prodigal received as soon as he comes back. No mention being made of a savior who seeks and saves him. Is it possible to teach all truths in one single parable? Does not the first one speak of the shepherd seeking the lost sheep? Why need repeat what has been said before? It has also been said that the prodigal returned of his own free will, for there is no hint of the operation of a superior power upon his heart. It seems as if he himself spontaneously says, I will arise and go unto my father. The answer is, Spurgeon says, that the Holy Spirit's work had been clearly described in the second parable and needed not to be introduced again. If you put the three pictures in a line, they represent the whole compass of salvation, and yet each one is distinct from the other, and by itself instructive. You may feel free to disagree with Spurgeon and myself, but I think it's certainly uh, plausible and biblical in that regard. So the who of salvation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. Secondly, though, the why of salvation. We touched on this last time. The three parables show us man's misery in being lost and God's joy in finding lost sinners. Uh, 
Think, for example, first of all, of man's misery portrayed in these parables, all right? The lostness of sinners is seen in three ways. It's seen in the sheep uh, who wanders from one patch of grass to another. If you've ever seen sheep, now I grew up in the Bronx. I, I, I don't think I even saw sheep in the Bronx Zoo, right? But, but I've been to Israel and I've been in the country and I've seen sheep. And if you see them, they, only, uh, they have their eyes only on what, what's immediately ahead of them. They eat this patch of grass and there's another patch of grass to eat it. They just wander about like that, all right? Uh, all the time uh, straying further away from the flock needing to be found. Or the coin. The coin is lost and the coin is lifeless. It can't even uh, bleat like the sheep can. It needs the Holy Spirit to seek and to find and to give life. Or the father uh, in the third parable is at home. Uh, He sent out the son and the Holy Spirit to seek the lost, uh, to whom the lost are to return. And the son uh, is... The prodigal son there is, is a picture of the folly of sin. In biblical times, you receive the inheritance only when the father dies. And as in going to the father and asking for the inheritance, as if he says to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. Kind of like Jim Morrison, I want the world and I want it now, right? You, he would say to his father as if he says, you're a restraint on what I want. You're unbearable, you're burdensome, you're keeping me from enjoying things. And isn't that exactly how sinners think of God? How many times I've heard people say, I don't want to become a Christian because I'd have to give up sex. I don't want to become a Christian because I'd have to give up drugs. I don't want to become a Christian because I'd have to give up the party scene, one thing or the other. No, God's a drag. God's a cosmic killjoy. It's exactly what the son says to his father. And yet all the while, despite not delighting in the Father, enjoying the Father, he can't live without the Father's provision. He can't live without the Father's subsidy. God sends rain and sun on the just and the unjust in order to lead men to repentance. But they enjoy his gifts. They can't live without them, but they despise him. Man's misery. And then God's joy in finding lost sinners. We noted last time, and I want to drill down on this somewhat today. First of all, we noted last time that it's God who rejoices here. Look at the text, verse 23 and 24. The father says, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's eat and celebrate Uh, And they began to celebrate, or back in verse uh, 5, 6, 7, 9, and especially verse 10. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's not the angels who rejoice. It's not heaven who rejoices. It's God who rejoices over lost sinners. You have intimations of this in Isaiah chapter 62. We won't turn there this morning. Verses 4 and 5, you can look it up later. Jeremiah 32, verse 40 and 41, and particularly Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, which we occasionally use for assurance and pardon here. It's one of the most astounding verses in all of Scripture. God sings over his people. We gather to worship on Sunday, 
to sing God's praises, to rejoice in the Lord, to give him the glory that is due to his name. And yet God in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says he is the one who sings. He sings over his people. He delights in his people. He rejoices over his people. You see, this parable opens a window into heaven itself. And the story reveals the very heart of God. That God rejoices. God experiences the fullness of joy at the salvation of sinners. Heaven reverberates with joy. God is vibrant with the highest, holiest, and most perfect of joys. God is moved by the spectacle of a saved sinner. All the angels look and see God's joy filling the heavens because someone that is lost has been found. I encourage you, I exhort you, do not doubt or despair of God's disposition if you're repentant. If you turn from sin and turn to the Lord, there is no need to doubt that he will receive you. Jesus with arms wide open says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. God's word is true. God's character is revealed. God takes the initiative in salvation. And that's the second thing we note here, is the seeking love of God. We noted last time that The shepherd seeks until the sheep is found. That the woman seeks until the coin is found. God's love is not passive. God doesn't wait passively for those to come to him. God seeks. Look at John chapter 4. I think it's instructive to look at this. Take time to look at John chapter 4. Some time ago there was a fad in evangelical circles called the seeker service. <clears throat> Bill Hybels out in Illinois had a church where Christians went to church on Wednesday and Sunday was when you had seeker services for unbelievers. That's all wrong, all right, for those that were seeking God. Look at John chapter 4, verse 23. The hour is coming, Jesus is talking about worship with the woman at the well. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We don't have to have services for people that are seeking God. God is seeking. God is searching. God wants sinners to be saved. Of course, personified in the giving of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So loved he the world that he gave his one and only son. The seeking love of God, the heart of God behind the mission of Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save those who were lost. God goes, God seeks, God searches. He sends Jesus Christ. If you're a good student in the Bible, you'll remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, remember that in Genesis chapter 3, what's the first thing they did? They didn't run to God to be forgiven, to say, give me the blood of a substitute. No, they hid from God. But God comes. God comes to the garden, seeking, seeking the fallen, seeking the sinner. You remember what he said, the first word spoken to the first sinner in the Bible? Where are you? God, the seeking love of God. 
And Jesus Christ is the embodiment, the personification, as I said, of God's search for man. Think of Saul on the Damascus Road. Saul, who persecuted the church. Saul, who went into the homes of believers and dragged them out, sometimes by their hair, as we might imagine, and dragged them and threw them into prison, threw them to be persecuted for following someone who claimed to be the Messiah of Israel. An utterly unlikely candidate, if ever there was one, was Saul. But on the Damascus Road, he's arrested by Jesus Christ. Miserable condition of sinners is no hindrance to divine love. The folly of those who think God is in a box, hiding, evasive, attempting to find God. This is an encouragement. Let me encourage you as warmer months come, as we go back into the park, Madison Square Park, as we conduct evangelistic enterprises, it's an encouragement to evangelism. <clears throat> the, if there's no evangelism, do we really believe that God is seeking sinners, seeking the lost, if we are not like Christ, going and seeking them, to bring them, to know where they, like us, can find forgiveness, where they, like us, can find the bread of life, where they, like us, can find living water. And thirdly, look in our text, verse 20 through 23, the incredible welcome of the Son by the Father. Verse 20, he, that is the Son, arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill, and let us eat and celebrate. Straight from the far squalor of sin comes the son. Squandering the father's wealth on riotous living comes the son. Squatting in a pigsty. Pigs were unclean. They were trafed. They were forbidden. They're to Orthodox Jews still don't eat bacon for shame today. All right? But not only with the pigs. They're in the pigsty. We had a pig farm when we lived in Michigan right across the street. And sometimes when the wind would blow in our direction, it was really... Not sue but woo Get a whiff of those pigs. Where's the son been? He's been wallowing in the muck with the pigs. He's foul. He stinks. He's filthy. In addition to all his other sin, putrid, guilty, deserving of death. Anyone else would have been loath to touch him. But the father with eyes of mercy, sees while he's a dot on the horizon, with bowels of mercy, filled with feet swift with mercy, runs to him with arms of mercy, embraces him with lips of mercy, kisses him. Look at verse 20. The father expressed his kindness before the son expressed his repentance. Son had a speech all prepared. The father didn't even let him finish. If that's not, not enough, the rehearsed speech of the son is cut off. It's as if the father says, no more talk of unworthiness. Even though it's true, you're my son. Immediate restoration. Immediate, free, full pardon. 
Not like you and me as parents. Those of you that are dads, you've probably uttered these words to your children. What have you been doing? How did you get into this mess? Don't you see your mother's gray hairs? Did you ever think of us and how this would affect us? None of it. None of it. Eloquent silence from the Father. No accusation. All is forgiven. All is forgotten. All the sonship, tokens of sonship are lavished on the prodigal. Robes for rags, a ring, sandals that were given not not to slaves but to sons, a fattened calf for a party, joy and restoration and resurrection. It's a picture of the gospel. Dead, foul, putrid, stinking sinners. But God, in love for the sake of Jesus Christ, declares no condemnation. Though your sins are like scarlet, they are whiter than snow. No more are you a stranger. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ, who is now your elder brother, adopted into God's family. You may be here this morning and lamenting your past. Oh, but my past, you don't know my past. Yeah, this gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. Those who are prone to wander and leave the one they love can bathe in the lavish love of the Father. For those of us that are parents, reflect on the Father's love and imitate Kids need to know that whatever goes wrong, they may always come back. However low you have a home, make your homes a place that your children always want to be. Not that they want to avoid, not that they want away from, but that they want to be there. And even if they do run away, that they can always come back. They're always welcome. The door is open. Love to see you. Not if you're a disgrace, your shame, you let us down. The Father is not austere, negative, harsh. If you're a drunkard, you can always come back. If you're an addict, you can always come back. If you're pregnant out of wedlock, you can always come back. If you get an abortion, you can always come back. If you go to jail, you can always come back. The Father will recognize you and will restore you. Come back to the Father's pity. Come back to the Father's embrace. And if you still say, I am unworthy, do not disgrace God as He beseeches you with open arms to turn And to trust in him. Do not be proud. Do not be stubborn. Do not be self-righteous. Do not be unbelieving. As you hear of this father. No. This is God the father. Portrayed for us. The prodigal son. How. How. May you be saved. Well, there's a popular hymn. We often sing it. 
Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked flee to thee for dress. Wash me or I die. Come, come, come. Look at verse 2, all the way back at the beginning of the chapter. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you see who this Jesus is? This is a Jesus that when lost sinners draw near to him in repentance, he receives them. Turn from sin. Turn, leave it behind. Leave it in penitence. How may you be saved? Turn and trust in Jesus. He receives lost sinners. The Father rejoices in lost sinners being found. And then fourthly, some lessons to be learned here. First lesson, What we learn from the parable of the prodigal son is that salvation is a great salvation from great sin. A great salvation from great sin. The prodigal is not just every man. It's not just a picture of anyone and everyone in generic character. Not a picture of the common man. Not a picture of the run-of-the-mill sinner. But he's the worst. He's the chief of sinners. He's in the cesspool of sin. He's as far away from God as you can go. He's as low as you can get. If ever there was one to be refused, if ever there was one to be rejected, it's the prodigal son. What will God do with such a sinner? What will God do when it cost him his one and only son? And what we see is that all heaven watches and waits. Peter, in his epistle, says angels long to look into these things. Picture them, if you will, at the parapets of heaven, looking down. What about that one? What do you think? Do you think God would save that one? Would, would, God, would God want anything to do with the likes of her? Angels long to look into these things. And as the angelic host crowds the rail, longing to look on, the doors of heaven slam open, and God goes running embraces, kisses, welcomes, assists. No matter how great the sin, I I cannot convey to you the greatness of the greatest sin cannot keep you from the love of God the Father in Jesus Christ. No matter what it is, No matter how great the sin, there's none too unique. There's no one too guilty. There's no one too depraved. There's no one can say, oh, you've never known the likes of me. God accepts repentant sinners. And the sacrifices he delights in are broken and contrite hearts. 
and he will not turn them away. And we learn a very important lesson about God. I've often said to you that the Bible is a mirror in which we see ourselves, and it's a window to heaven through which we can see God at the same time. And this passage is a window into heaven, into the very character of God. David Brown, an old writer, said this, and I quote, Was ever teaching like this heard on earth? Did even the mouth that spake as never man spake utter such words of grace to the vilest for fullness and melting tenderness of love on any other recorded occasion? His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. What, in all his filth? Yes. In all his rags? Yes. Yes. In all his haggard, shattered wretchedness, yes, our Father who art in heaven, is this what you're really like? It is even so, and because it is so, I wonder not that such incomparable teaching has made the world new. This is God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God who is revealed on the pages of sacred scripture. This is the God who speaks to you today. This is the God who reveals himself to you, who calls to you. Come, come, come. Turn and trust. To those of you that are doubting, Oh, my past, I don't know. No, this is true for you. To those of you who think you're unworthy, I repeat, do not disgrace God. For parents, reflect, imitate, be like the Father. For evangelism, if we're saved by a God like this, then we're called to be like this God and to seek and to save the salvation of sinners, no matter how wretched, no matter how foul. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you don't know him as he is revealed in this text, if you don't know him as the one who has embraced you, kissed you, welcomed you, forgiven you, restored you, dressed you in the robes of his righteousness then don't think about this. Don't speculate. But above all, don't hesitate. When we had the memorial service for Stephen Somer, for Dolores Morales, for Eric Sigward, I believe it was at the conclusion of every homily at every one of those memorials, I concluded with these words with which I conclude to you if you're here lost today. Don't be caught dead without Jesus Christ. You may have forsaken his law, but do not reject his love. Today is the day of salvation. Today he calls you to turn from sin and trust in him.
Arise like the prodigal and act. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, what a God you are. What a God we have. What a God who has revealed yourself to us. Father, forgive us for when we doubt and help our unbelief. Forgive us for when we are prone to wander. Forgive us for when we think low or meanly of you. Forgive us for when we don't run to you constantly to be received, to be restored, to be renewed. Help us, we pray. As the God of all grace, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.